It's really good to be with you today and just to journey with you. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing. And we acknowledge that this morning that we believe. We believe all of it. Every single bit. We believe that you were the creator of the heavens and the earth. We believe that today you are in our midst. That you would honor us, great and mighty God, with your presence to speak and to teach and to lead us in righteousness. We believe that you are still saving souls. We believe that you've saved us and daily you save us from ourselves. And for that we are grateful. What an honor, Jesus. What a privilege, Jesus, to know you. You are not just another God. You are the one and only. And this morning we worship you. We continue worshiping you. We will continue worshiping you for the rest of today and tomorrow and the rest of our lives. For you are worthy. There is none like you. Jesus, glorify your name this morning. Glorify the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. That in all we do this morning, you may be honored. May no man shine. May no man stand out but the name of Jesus. Take your place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very dangerous sharing a vision. Because it can sound like, hey, that's those people. Wow, they're doing great things. And I want to start before I share with you a little bit of what we're doing, that this is all a part of God's majestic plan. And right, we don't think we're at the center, right on the side is this little pinprick of a good thing God is doing. Um, and, and it's called J-Life. Uh, but it's a part of everything. This eternal plan to reconcile man to God. And he's chosen us to be a part of that. JLife is a, a youth organization and our passion is, I love seeing so many of the young guys, man. It's good to see you here this morning, man. Our passion is to see young leaders trained from Africa to impact the youth in Africa. Uh, there's a battle on for the souls of the young people all across the world. And we have seen by Hollywood, by the drug cartels, by the, the people that are distributing alcohol, they are targeting our young people. Uh, Satan is waging war against the youth of the world because he knows if he can gain the young person he knows that when they grow old, it's very difficult for them to break those habits. And so if he can make them into a sex addict or drug addict or addicted to alcohol or addicted to their work or addicted to sport, he's won the victory in their lives. And the reality is that he is giving them the very, very, very best. Proverbs says, train a child up in the way they must go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And Satan knows that. Train them up in the way they should go, bad or good. 
And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Or they will struggle the rest of their lives with these difficulties in trying to overcome it. We believe in the youth of Africa. We believe that they are not a lost cause. These are the countries that J-Life is currently working in, and the statistic there or the percentage there is the, the amount of people in that country under the age of 15 years old. Okay? Total population of the 21 countries. Any guesses how many countries there are in Africa? Hello, that requires a response. No, you, you've heard us speak about it. That's cheating, man. They told me at go-karting yesterday, you're lucky the pastor's not here. He cheats always. <laughs> 53 countries all over Africa. And you can see most of J-Life work is under the 10, I don't know if it's longitude or latitude, I had an African education. And so they never taught us that. But it's under that 10 line, that long latter line. Okay? Um, above here is all the Muslim countries. We are praying that God gives us access into those countries. Pray with us. We're praying for two countries as a beachhead into those countries. That God will open it up. At the moment, these are the countries we're working in. 220 million Young people that are under the age of 15 years old live in those countries. That's nearly your population. Of the nearly 1 billion people living across Africa, they say 76%, 760 million people are under the age of 31 years old. And that's the target of the kingdom of darkness. And we see it. I go onto the streets, I watch it. Every single day I see the consequence of it and I see how it's destroying Africa because those young people are growing up to lead in our continent. They do not have ethic, they do not have moral, they are corrupt, they seek their own good and nobody else's good. We need Jesus in Africa. And so as we look at that, we go, well, what is the statistic when it comes to Christians in these countries? You know that 69, nearly 70% of the countries we working in claim to be Christian. Just like I claim to be a Panther supporter when I come to North Carolina. <laughs> you, you get the idea here? I know nobody on the team. I, I absolutely, I mean, I just, I'm a supporter. Panthers. <laughs> Maybe if there's a revival, Panthers. Hey, Baptists were clapping this morning. I was impressed. Hey, they were, okay, let's not go there. But that's who claims to be Christian. Evangelical Christians around Africa, that's how it changes. 20.5%. Notice some of these stats. From 92% who claim to be Christian, those who are walking with Jesus and doing what Jesus told them to do go down to 18%. 
Namibia, look at this statistic. 12.2% from 91%. These are people that claim to be Panther supporters, but on the sidelines, they are sexually immoral. They are drug addicts. They are drunks. They are cheating in their workplaces. They are bowing down to their ancestors and offering sacrifices and um, yeah, sacrifices to their ancestors. You know, it hit me so hard the one day when I sat with the pastor and I said to him, so talk to me a little bit about your belief system in your church. So he said to me, you know, John, we as a church have really been struggling of late because we're trying to work out whether it's accessible for, acceptable for people to have an idol at home to pray to their ancestors. And I'm just going, you're trying to work that out? How are you trying to work that out? There's one mediator between God and man, and that is the person, Jesus Christ. And you're trying to tell me that it's accepted acceptable for your people to bow down to an idol and, and light candles and pray to an idol that will give them access to Nkulunkulu, which directly translated is the great, 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 great God. And so when I look at the African continent, I look and I go, I now understand why we have some of the mess in our continent. I now understand why the rich oppress the poor. I now understand why uh, leaders in government will, will milk their country. Do you use that term, milk? They'll milk their country for all they can and destroy their nations because they do not know that author and perfecter of all good things. You see, as J-Life um, works across the continent, we believe that we've got to come back to the source. It's Jesus Christ. Uh, we're training young leaders to work with youth and young adults. In fact, we're having pastors come to us now and say, please, man, I, I've been to seminary, but I still don't. I know how to do exegesis. I know how to do this, but I don't know how to do, make disciples. Teach me how to make disciples. And, and as we look at where do we find the resource to teach people to make disciples, we come back to the author and perfecter of all things. I am amazed at how many books are being written about this church and their model and just do that model and you will make disciples or this church and their model. And I mean, Pitts Baptist, haven't you guys heard? Next week, your book is being released. Um, the youth pastor has written okay, a section. But, and, and so what we're doing is we're adopting models from churches rather than going back to Jesus. J-Life stands for Jesus' life, and we're a missions organization that want to teach the local church how to run disciple-making after how Jesus did it. Because he's got it. I mean, he did it. <laughs> I'm here today because of Jesus and what he invested into 
a group of 120. Appointed 12 leaders, invested into a group of 120, and this thing just multiplied. They're 2,000 years down the line. That's disciple-making. As J-Life um, seeks to do this, our mission is to mobilize disciple-making youth movements throughout the church of Jesus Christ in Africa. We at no point are saying that we're wanting to start youth centers because the church is not doing it. We believe that Jesus Christ said, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know, you know what that picture is? <laughs> it's not a, a, a kingdom of darkness, the men that were with me over the weakness. Over the weakness. It was a weakness. Over the weekend, okay? It's not the kingdom of darkness advancing. Gates stand and they are stagnant. They are stationary. It's the church that moves forward. And it is a church that knocks over the gates of poverty. It's a church that knocks over the gates of immorality. It's a church that knocks over the gates of corruption. And that's why Jesus would say, you are the salt and the light of the earth. Where salt preserves decay. Where salt brings a flavor. Where salt... I mean, salt has so many different things that it does. It brings healing. And Jesus says, we are the salt and the light of the world. And so J-Life, in no ways we are saying that we wanting to go out there and start youth ministries that are separate from the church. We wanting to see the church mobilized to do what Jesus Christ called us to do. The vision really arose out of these four things that youth would be impacted, and I love what you two are doing, that youth would be impacted, because if we can impact youth, we will impact Africa. Hear this. Satan, if he can impact youth, he'll impact Africa, because those young people become our leaders. If they are not trained in the right way to go, they become corrupt, immoral, uh, Leaders that are seeking their own good and not the good of the people. And so as we, we saw the need in Africa, we believed that we needed to train young people up who would know Jesus, love Jesus, and then ultimately impact Africa. The second reason the vision arose is um, that we, we just have a real passion to see leaders from Africa for Africa, impacting Africa. 97% of the trained youth workers, they say, come out of the USA. 97% of the trained youth workers. What is your youth population? If I'm saying ours is 760 million under the age of 31 years old, and we're only sitting with the 3% trained youth workers, in that 3%, if we're 0.1% of that 3%, I think that's a lot. And then we wonder why Africa is in the mess it's in. So if we can train leaders from Africa for Africa, I think we can change Africa. The third reason for the mission 
is that as, um, as God birthed this vision, uh, I was on a music and drama team. Drama? Okay. Um, music, I'm not going to try and show you. Do you want me to show you? No, we'll not go there, okay? I was on a music and drama team, and it focused on evangelism in the 1990 and 1991. And as... I went all over South Africa, and we, we went into schools, and we went everywhere that the youth were. We saw radical fruit, and youth were flocking to these, these crusades we were having, and, and Jesus was reaching their hearts and saving them. 91, I went back on the team, and I went to some of the same churches, and I got there, and the churches were empty. And I went, where are all the youth? What's happened to those youth? And they were like stillborn babies. And God planted a little seed in my heart back then in 1991. And for nine years, he grew that seed. And my wife and I, we were both on the same team and, and we both witnessed with it. And that seed grew that nine years later, we left the local church to start empowering churches that the youth that they saw come to know Jesus wouldn't just put up their hand and pray the sinner's prayer, but actually would become disciple makers. And we started a journey, just the two of us. Sounds like a song, eh? Just the two. Okay, but it's, we started this journey. Let me say that we were not the sharpest knives in the drawer, and still are not, Okay. I mean, I failed standard one, and I'm kind of going, God, what can you do with me? And God said, I want you to do something. Because in your weakness, I am made strong. In your nothingness, I am glorified. And in 2001, we started J-Life, and we've seen J-Life and God grow the ministry powerfully powerfully, um, that leaders come to us. People contact us over the email and say, man, I've seen your website, and, and I love what you guys are doing, and, and please, um, can you bring this to our country? Now, our modus operandi is to find a man of peace in each of these countries. Once we found a man of peace, somebody who believes and is passionate about what we believe, I don't believe that South Africans gain to Rwanda, Burundi, the DRC have the answer. But I believe if we can raise up a leader from those countries, train that leader to build a team like Jesus did around him, and that team to train the church, we will make a difference. And so as we started down in South Africa, we had this passion for Africa, and slowly God started sending us amazing people. It, one story, and I can tell you a number of these stories. One story is uh, Nigeria, an amazing country. Uh, it's also a scary country if you've been there, okay? Um, if you need an illegal passport, just talk to me. I've got some Nigerian friends. So Nigeria, 130 million people in Nigeria. 130 million people people. I have a guy email me and say, John, I've heard about the, the J-Life training. 
we, we, he doesn't say John, he just emails our office. So I've heard about the J-Life training, we'd love you to bring this to our country. Um, I can recruit 500 leaders for you to come in and train. And straight away, that doesn't gel with us, and you'll hear later on in our mission. I'm not so keen in training 500 because it doesn't seem to have an impact. Um, and so I put it off, and I think, I'll just leave that. Um, uh, Three months later, I go to the Philippines, and J-Life is a part of a, a global youth initiative where we all teach the life of Jesus. And so I'm meeting with all these other guys there, about 40 of us around the table, and an American guy says to me, John, hey man, I've met this guy in Nigeria. He's an amazing guy. And I think that this guy can pioneer it for you guys in J-Life. I've journeyed with him, I've been there a few times, and I see he's got the right heart, he's got the right DNA, um, but we can't carry on with him. Can I give him to you? So I say, yeah, give him to us. Um, our guy who we thought was our man of peace, was, it wasn't working in Nigeria, and so I'm going, Lord, what's the next step? We've invested time and effort here, what's the next step? I get a hold of this guy, and I'm emailing, and eventually we're starting to plan, and I've said to him, I want to come to your country. I only want 12 strategic leaders straight away for any Nigerian that, that just is foreign. He's going, why would you come all this way? The flight from South Africa to Nigeria is a seven-hour flight. Why would you do that and only want to work with 12? And I'm saying to him, I want to train those 12 to train their 12 and so that we can have multiplication and it can go viral, like the, the, the latest catchphrase. Man, I'm, I'm only in with the words. Eh? And so, so my desire is to see this thing not stop at a conference, but actually impact people who will take it further. And so I say to him, that's great. Hey, I, I, I reach out to him and I say, man, I also need you to get hold of this other Nigerian leader that, that I'm still trying to make sure that it works. Get him and invite him to be a part of this and I will come in and I'll train these 12, but if he can come, I know then it will go further. This leader emails me back and says, Yo, John, I know this guy. This guy is the guy that emailed you three months ago. And you sent me his details and asked me to follow up on him. Hear this, 130 million people in Nigeria. <laughs> and God will take one guy, get him to contact me, then put me, I put him in contact with our guy up there and it doesn't work. God will take me to the Philippines to meet an American who will say to me, John, I've got this amazing guy who had already contacted you, John. And God says, wake up. I'm doing something here. I want you to be a part of it. And I'm able to join him. Man. And I'm able to be a part of a big thing that God is doing. I want to take you through just a little bit of what we teach. Pastor said I, I can preach for an hour, so this is my preach. That was my share. Why are you laughing? None of the youth were laughing. They're going, mate, if you're not out of here in 10 minutes, we're going to stone you. 
What you not in your head for? I want to take you on a journey. They put these chairs just for me this morning. I want to take you through four chairs. From the first chair, which speaks of unbelief and immaturity, or unbelief, not immaturity, just unbelief. Somebody who doesn't follow Jesus. To chair four, which speaks about a person that is living a lifestyle of disciple-making. Jesus gave us a mandate. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Matthew chapter 22. Okay, verse 37, those that are taking notes. Looks like nobody is. Okay? He gave us another mandate. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 on. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The disciples had seen that authority. Throughout this journey from unbelief to maturity, they had seen it. They had seen Jesus casting out demons. They had seen Jesus calming the storm. Hey, I would have liked to be there, just not fishing. Okay, I would have liked to be in some of these examples of them seeing that authority. And Jesus goes on to say, now you go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've taught you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the ages. You see, the chair four for me is somebody who is living great commission and great commandment priorities. The chair four is somebody who, who has moved beyond the filling a pew every single Sunday paradigm and actually has realized that this is about me being the salt and the light of the world, who now lives a lifestyle that says, I initiate relationships with my unbelieving peers for the sake of them coming to know Jesus. My unbelieving peers sitting in that chair over there. You know what? For me to initiate relationships with them, I've got to leave this chair and I've got to come and live a little bit with them. Jesus said to those guys right at the end of his ministry, John chapter 16, verse 15. You never chose me. Hey, that's encouraging. You never chose me. And so it doesn't leave anything to us being the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I know many of you are. But it's not about you. <laughs> you never chose me. I chose you so that you may bear fruit, showing to be my disciples. John 15, verse 8 says that you may bear much fruit. And I think of those simple individuals that first encountered Jesus, that he took them through four years, and only at the end of his ministry were they ready for Jesus to say to him, now here's what I want you to do. Go bear fruit. Let's look at chair one. I call this, this individual that sits in this chair the person that's lost, that doesn't know Jesus yet. I want to introduce you to some people in my story. That's not my story. It's Jesus' story. Andrew and John, James, Peter, some familiar names, Philip, Nathaniel, 
John the Baptist is he's baptizing down at the bottom of the Jordan River at a place called Bethany, a small little village. The masses are, are coming around. They're all gathering huge amount of people. I'm guessing Jesus uh, came down to John. I'm not guessing. We know that he came down to John. He was baptized. The Spirit descended onto him um, like a dove. And Jesus goes off into the wilderness. He spends 40 days in the wilderness. He's not got any of these people in his journey yet. Okay, there are four chairs. One, we're going to add two, and we're going to add three, and we're going to um, four's already there. He's not got anybody in. Jesus is still preparing himself before he actually launches this incredible ministry of his. Forty days is in the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness and he goes back to where John had baptized him at this place called Bethany. And as John sees Jesus coming by, seven days in the life, told you our African education is not great, okay? Seven days in the life of Jesus. Day one comes out of the wilderness. John sees him coming and John points to Jesus and he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A whole group of people who are in chair one are listening to this. Verse 25, and none of them follow him. That's fascinating. I mean, you must understand the context here. These guys have been looking for the Messiah. They're under the Roman oppression. They desperately want to get out of this oppression. And John says, there's a Savior. And nobody follows. Day 2, verse 35, John chapter 1. John is there again with two of his disciples. Now, I don't know if that's just giving us the two that eventually follow Jesus or it was only two. But John again points to Jesus and he says, look, the Lamb of God. He doesn't say who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew maybe goes, hmm, he said it yesterday. Maybe I need to take this seriously. Andrew follows after Jesus with the other disciple. Now, I think that that's John. It could have been Philip. But he follows after Jesus, and Jesus eventually turns back and says, Hey, guys, how you doing? How do they do it in America? Hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. Sorry. Hey, hey all y'all. What do you want? And they say, Where are you staying? Key verse, Jesus says, come and see. Come and see what? Help me a bit here. Come and see what? Hello? That's kind of some response required. Come and see what? Come and see what you will see. Is that what you said? That's why they're scared to answer. The preacher might make a fool of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> Come and see what you will see, okay? Come and see what? Are they always this dead or scared? Come and see my life. Come and spend some time with me. The Bible tells us that it was about the 10th hour, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, now, they didn't have oh, so many lights when it went dark. They, they would have been around a fire. 
And so when the fire died, they left. And the Bible tells us the first thing Andrew did was he goes and he finds his brother, Peter, and he tells him what? Now you can read it in the Bible. We have found the Messiah. Something happened for Andrew in this chair, this unbelief chair, because he didn't follow Jesus the first day. The second day he goes to go and explore. By the end of that encounter with Jesus, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. I don't know about you, but I'd love to know what they spoke of that evening. Or what convinced Andrew that Jesus was the Messiah? Maybe Jesus made the fire and then just went. <laughs> no, I don't think that, okay? I think that maybe Jesus says to him, so tell me, man, why, why would John say I'm the Messiah? Hey, that's a good question. Well, we don't know. So, so tell me, Jesus says, what do the prophets say about the Messiah? Well, they, they say that he'd come from Bethlehem. They say that he'd, he'd run to Egypt. They say that he would uh, come from Nazareth. And can anything good come from Nazareth? They say that, and they start listing them off, and Jesus goes, so I was born in Bethlehem. I was, do you have aha moments in America? Yeah, I know, yeah. Like, oh, and they just get it. And they move from the first chair into the second chair, the belief chair. So much so that Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter, and he says to his brother Peter, I found the Messiah. You see, Jesus calls him first to come and see his life, and he teaches them, and he he, he encounters them with the gospel. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that shortly after this, Jesus moves through the whole region and he preaches, preaches, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And that's what people need to hear. They need to hear that sin has robbed us of a relationship with God. They need to hear that it's because of our sin as as wonderful as you think you are, you still have sin, and that sin separates you from God. But they need to hear it out of relationship. They don't need to hear it with the big King James Version over their head. Boom! You need Jesus. The reality is that the world is full of these people that need to come and see. And who they look into they look into you and I to see the Jesus that was here 2,000 years ago. When we talk about these folk, we talk about two types. The religious lost, those who are coming to church every single Sunday. You come in and just like John's disciples, he was teaching to them, but they missed Jesus. They missed him. And our churches are full of religious lost that haven't encountered Jesus. They attend a meeting every single Sunday. Or the secular lost. And the secular lost is growing. 
I want to talk about chair two. The next day, day three, Jesus goes and finds Philip and says to Philip, I'm going up to Galilee. Come follow me. Philip goes immediately and he finds his friend Nathaniel in chair one. He's not a believer and says, hey, I found the one that Moses spoke about. This is John chapter one, verse 43 on. I found the one that Moses speaks about. And, and uh, Nathaniel goes, oh, so he says, yeah, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? What's Philip's response? Come in, see? And he takes him to Jesus. Amazing, Jesus goes with his disciples and they go through Samaria and they come to a place called Sychar and the woman at the well comes to know Jesus. And what does she do? She goes to her village and she says to them, come and see one who told me everything about myself. And we see how, how right at the beginning of people believing in Jesus, they're passionate to lead their friends to Jesus. The reality is that those who sit in chair two, if they haven't moved on from chair two to chair three, they will get stagnant and live here for the rest of their lives. The reality, secondly, is that within two years, these people have either got all their friends from chair one to be chair two people, or they've lost these friends because they don't want anything more to do with them. And so straight away they go and share. And we see a whole lot of things happening in Jesus' ministry to these guys. He walks up to the wedding at Cana. They spend three days together. What do you think Jesus is teaching them? Telling them about the character and the priorities of the kingdom. Instilling into their lives what is important. It's not important just to attend meetings. This is what is important. I want you to live these priorities and invest into their lives. They go up to the wedding at Cana and he, he cha changes water into wine. I'm trying to hide. We don't speak about that. Okay, he changes water into wine. And they watch this. And at the end of it, I love it. His disciples were present and they put their faith in him. They believed in him is what it says. From there, Jesus goes down with his family and he lives in Capernaum for a little while or he just goes down on holiday. We don't actually know, but it says he took his family and stayed in Capernaum for a while. I, I'm wondering how those disciples felt at the wedding at Cana. I'm wondering how, how good it must have been to be a part of Jesus' crowd. Hey, I'm one of them. I count me in there. A year later, Jesus goes up to the temple and he does the first temple cleansing. And at that moment in time, I'm thinking the disciples are backpedaling and going, I'm not, <laughs> I don't know him. I don't know him. I mean, they, they journey. Jesus is growing these guys because he wants them to own the character and priority. After that, um, they go into somebody's home, and at night they hear a knock on the door. And here comes Nicodemus. I want to see the teacher. This is a religious lost. He knows it all. And Jesus invests into his life. These guys are watching, and they're going, hmm. He teaches like no one else teaches. 
from there, they go down back to the Jordan River and they baptize him. And, and Jesus, John's baptizing higher up closer to the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are not liking this fact that Jesus is growing and gaining in popularity. First John, now Jesus, where does this thing stop? And so Jesus decides he's going to get away from, from this wave that's brewing and he heads back up. His cousin's been thrown into prison. And so there's some political turmoil happening, and Jesus is saying, you know, I don't want to get these second chair guys involved in this. And he heads back up to the Sea of Galilee, and um, on his way, he passes through um, Sychar, and we have John chapter 4, the woman at the well. I'm wondering what he's teaching them there. Maybe he's teaching them the gospel's not just for the Jews. The gospel's not just for men. The good Jewish men would pray a prayer that said something like, I thank God I wasn't born a, a woman, a Samaritan, or a dog. And we laugh, but that was the culture of these early followers. And Jesus takes him and gives him an experience and blows their world apart that they go, wow, this is different. They go up and they do the temple, not the temple. They go into Nazareth and Jesus um, stands up and he reads the Luke chapter 4 passage. And we see that he, he sits down then and he says, this passage has been fulfilled in your midst. I mean, an amazing passage. Open your Bibles quickly to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have it here, I'll just read it for you. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Remember, chair two is watching all of this. They see and they observe and they learn him. But Jesus' goal is not to leave them in chair two. He wants to move them on. Jesus stands up and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he sits down and he says, this has been fulfilled in your midst. And they love him. Until Jesus says that he's going to take it to the Gentiles, then they want to take him out and throw him off a cliff's edge. I mean, these guys are watching all of this. You know what will happen later? Jesus, and I just, this has been made known to me of late. It says that a sign of the Messiah was that he would give sight to the blind. We don't hear much miracles around giving sight to the blind through the whole Old Testament. But I, I can't find one. Maybe I'm... I told you I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So. I mean, I can't find one. Now all of a sudden, these guys are witnessing Jesus taking a man that literally doesn't have eyeballs in his eyes, spitting in the ground, making some mud, putting it in the guy's eyes, and giving him his sight back. What is he trying to transfer to these guys? We talk character and priority. We talk laying a foundation in their lives that would hold them right to the point where most of them would die for the gospel. Think five things. 
The first is that community is important. I've called you to follow me. I haven't called you to, to come and sit in a meeting and listen to me once a week. I've called you to follow me. I, I, I want to live in your lives. I want you guys to become such a strong knit of people that you will change the world. The second priority that he emphasizes is a priority that you guys need to take this message. Jesus recognized that for the movement that he was starting to continue, he had to involve other people in those priorities. The kingdom was going to expand because Jesus transferred God's passion and love for the lost. And what have we done with that passion and the love for the lost? Is we've said, do not associate with these people. Be separated from them. Come out from among them. Which is what Scripture says. But it's in the context of me compromising and becoming these people. And Jesus wants his second chair people to understand, I want you to witness to them. Thirdly, Jesus wanted them to understand what authentic worship was about. And they would see this throughout. But in John chapter 4, he says to the woman at the well, a day is coming and has now come where my worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth. He wanted them to understand that it was more than gathering for a sing-along. Though that is important and it's good for us corporately, Jesus wanted them to understand that worship is who I am every single day. Fourthly, Jesus wanted them to understand what service was and how they are to serve one another. That ultimately when he washes their feet, he gives them the absolute expression of service. And then lastly, that they would be grounded in the word of God. And now I know the youth are going, praise the Lord, he's grabbing chair three. Oh, we get in there. Are you still with me? Good. 18 to 21 months down the line, Jesus has hung out with these guys. They've come backwards and forwards. Matthew 4, 18 happens. Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, Andrew and his brother Peter, uh, casting their nets. I think I better make sure I get that dead right. Ow. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Somebody want to just read that for us? <laughs> no, don't. I'll, I'll just give it to you. Now that I've got my earpiece on. It says, verse 18, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, I don't like this translation. Okay, what's your translation say? And I will make you fishers of men. Or I will get you to fish for men. I prefer that translation. Because that's what Jesus wanted to do. He had said to him, guys, you've watched me through all this time. Now I'm going to show you how to do it. And he gets them involved in what he was doing. 
He takes him out and he involves him in ministry. He goes into the, the synagogue and he heals, uh, or at least he casts out a demon. And you'll read this in, in Mark chapter 1 and going on into chapter 2 and Luke 4 into Luke 5. He casts out the demon. Then the next thing he does is he goes to Peter, uh, Peter and Andrew's home uh, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Some theologians would say that as soon as Jesus calls him to be chair three people, he goes off for three months and he goes into the neighboring villages. And in fact, Matthew, if you read there, just after that passage, verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and then healing every disease and sickness among the people. He comes back after that to Capernaum. Peter and Andrew and James and John, these early workers with Jesus, they've been with him. They've been watching him. They've been involved with him. Now he comes back and he goes into the synagogue and he casts out the demon. Sabbath day. Nothing can really happen. You'll read, and if you go to, to the passages, Luke chapter 4, you'll read how um, straight at nightfall, Many people came to Jesus. But in the meantime, Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. And I, I kind of wonder, why is that there? Why does he heal his mother-in-law? I wouldn't do that. But anyway, why did he heal the mother-in-law? I'm thinking for three months, Peter's gone. And, and when the food has started to dwindle, the mother-in-law, whoa, has got sick. Peter gets back into this environment and, whoa, does he only hit a brick wall? And Jesus goes in to say, Peter, I'm going to involve you in what I'm doing and I'll help you do it. So when I heal your mother-in-law. Two, Luke chapter five, verse one. Peter's going back to fish because he needs to provide for his family. He's been out the whole night. He's caught nothing. And Jesus comes and says, Peter, push your boat out into deeper water. Peter now says to Jesus, Master, we've been out the whole night and we've caught nothing. Different to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, where Peter is fishing. We've caught nothing. And then he goes on to say, but because you, you understand, Peter had journeyed through chair one, chair two, jet lag, okay? Peter had journeyed through chair two to chair three, that he was at the point where he could say, but because you say so. He throws his nets over and he just sees God performing a miracle. And it says, after that, Jesus now changes the challenge and he says to Peter, from now on, you will fish for men. Peter goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and Jesus gives him over here. He says, this is the cost of discipleship. If you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself. He doesn't say it to them over here, because maybe they would have run away. <laughs> In John chapter 6, where Jesus speaks about the bread of life, it's over here. And many of the disciples left him, chair 2. At that point, Jesus turns to his chair three guys and says, are you two going to leave us? And they go, where can we go? And ultimately, Jesus says to them just before the cross, now you go and do what I've been doing. That's disciple making. 
I think we've got caught up. We think disciple-making is get a person to pray a prayer so that they can enter chair two and then we keep them comfortable. Scripture tells us that the role of our leaders, apostle, pastor, prophet, teacher, and evangelist, is to, Ephesians 4.11, equip the saints for acts of service. The end of the day, the fruit of an apple tree is, I'm losing it again, sings painful, man. Sorry, I'm painful. The fruit of an apple tree is? Now that's really easy. The fruit of an apple tree is? An apple. The fruit of a Christian is? Sorry, that's also easy. A Christian. The fruit of a disciple-making lifestyle is? Not a disciple, a disciple-maker. That's what God's called us to do. We are passionate to train young leaders who will help journey people from unbelief, immaturity to maturity. We are passionate about helping them understand what I do for chair one. Do I run sports ministry? Do I do upward? We've run upward. We've got a young guy. Upward was pulled out of Africa, and we've got a young guy busy developing uh, an upward thing for Africa to say, guys, here's how you can reach this lost person. What do we do when they get here? How do we transfer those five qualities? Do we start small groups? How do we train them to do small groups, mentoring? How do we do it over here? And your church has got it. I mean, I'm watching some of this stuff. You're sending out short-term mission trips. That's how we equip the workers. We get them involved in ministry. Jesus did it with them. Not only mission trips to Africa, mission trips here. That ultimately we will be living disciple-making lifestyles. I was told that I needed to finish at 12, but this clock seems to have stopped working. What is the time? Oh, your clock's also not working. Okay. How does J-Life do that? I'm just going to shoot through this. We look at win, build, equip, multiply. Our ministry philosophy, and I spoke about this a little bit earlier on, is to train key leaders, not to go in and run mass seminars where I look good and people go, wow, I can't look good, I'm sorry, but that they go, wow, and he's such a great, not going to happen. And when I leave, they forget it. You know what helped us understand this is that I met somebody 10 years after we had trained them in the seminar format, and he said, oh, I know, J-Life, great stuff. You guys teach about, um, what was it? Yeah, really great stuff. It was like... And I'd go, win, yes, win, build, and, and, and you've done nothing with it. And so we've changed our whole methodology, and what we do now is we train the key leader, telling them that they need to train and pass it on to their key leaders, and their key leaders then train and pass it on to the next generation. And that's multiplication. Our passion or our vision is to train 21,000 leaders at these two levels. The first level, so this is 12 different churches, 
who will recruit and train their leaders. What we do is we do a little bit of training. They go on and they pass it on to their leaders. This is a far more intensive program. Do a lot of training. They go at home and pass it on to their leaders. They come back for more training. They go home and pass it on. Um, what we used to do is we'd have a four-month training camp and we'd just dump information and we watch the guys. They hit their churches and they just did what they used to do back home. And so now we give them small increments. We give them outcomes. And in the seven weeks, they've got to do what they've been told to do. And so in the next seven weeks, you start a small group with a group of young people. We will evaluate that when you get back. So that each time we are... Not giving information, but growing leaders from Africa for Africa. Our vision is to see um, this ministry established in 15 countries. I say that picture showed 21, but established for us is where there's a group of indigenous people, multiple teams, of, uh, multiple people forming a team that is driving it in their country. And we've still got some way to go towards that. That will run 500 of those groups with the red men, the orange men, and the yellow men, okay? Um, and women. That will mobilize 3,000 ministries that model disciple-making according to the strategy that Jesus used. And ultimately, we will train 21,000 leaders who do disciple-making. I want you to understand the consequence or the impact of that. If I can train 21,000 leaders who are living in chair four, and they only take one person the next year and make a disciple maker out of that, that means 41,000. To the following year, if all of them become disciple makers, to 80,000. The following year to 160. The following year to 320, to a million. Let me put it this way. If I only get one disciple maker to live the disciple making lifestyle and teach him to do it the next year, and the following year we have four and eight and 16, by year 32 we will have impacted not just Africa but the eight billion people around the world. And all I will have discipled is 32 people. It's doable. That's the passion that we would like to see. Where do you fit in and how can you be involved? Um, Pastor asked me to come and share the vision so that we can see whether this is a partnership. We've got all those countries, as you saw on the e earlier slides, that we're working with. What we're asking from your church is just to partner with us in one of those countries. Um, these are, are men... These are the men that are, are leading the work in Malawi. This is Connex. Connex, uh, two months ago, or a little over two months ago, lost his daughter of 20 years old. She woke up at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 8.30, she was dead. Um, and so he's gone through some serious tragedy in his life. They are really passionate about Malawi. And he's another leader like the, the Nigerian leader that God has given us, that loves Jesus, that wants to see his country transformed. He works part-time as a pastor in his church. He's got this guy over here and this guy over here who work full-time under him to drive the J-Life uh, vision in the country. 
And they, I am coming to you and saying, partner with us to adopt Malawi as a country that is a mission extension of your church. Pray for them. Uh, put up boards in the front with pictures of these guys and what they're doing. Get their newsletter so that, that as a church, you're praying for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Secondly, support. Um, I expressed to Pastor, he said, what can we do? And I said, these guys really battle to raise support in country because they had the old mission system that the missionary came and did it all for the church. They paid for everything. They did everything. And we are trying to create a new culture where we're raising up churches that think we've got to be sown into uh, the work of God. But until then, we need churches that will partner with us in helping support these guys as they're out on the mission field. And so these become missionaries of yours. You don't just send money. They're actually missionaries of yours in the outermost parts of the world. And then lastly, join us. Um, about two or three years ago, we, these guys had opportunity to purchase land for J-Life and to establish a center over there. God gave us the resources to purchase the land. It's been standing for two years. Um, and we, we would like to see a training center built up there that can be training young leaders, but also that can be used to, to hire out to churches and to schools and that, that it can generate funds to help these men mobilize a mission across their continent, um, across their country. The, the work in Malawi has also extended down into Mozambique, and so they're not only working in Malawi, they're working in the northern, I mean, the northern parts of Mozambique. And so this would be a hub that we bring all the leaders to. And I, I've shared with Pastor, he's saying, well, how can we journey with you for five years? I'm saying, send teams. One, two, three, 50 teams a year. And let's take what there is... Um, totally overgrown and let's build a center that can be used for God's glory and to impact into Malawi and beyond. That's the J-Life vision and passion. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Pastor, just for inviting me to be a part of what's happened over this weekend. It's been a privilege, man. Bless you. Amen. Thank you, John. <clears throat> Back in February and March, when the men's group was there, we had the privilege of being there when some of these 32 that he talks about, he's responsible for investing in. They had this big training summit going on for those. And uh, we got to meet some of those, uh, meet the uh, person on the ground in Malawi who also pastors a church there. And uh, when I asked John, I said, how, how can a local church best help you? Again, rather than just running in and running out, maybe never seeing you again, how can we best help you? He said, Scott, we've got to get into Malawi next. That's the next step. We have this, this particular guy is trained 
and ready to go. He's at the point in his training now. He's ready to be established. We have the site for facility and everything. We've got to take Malawi as a next step. So we're going to be asking you to pray about that. Is that a partnership that we want to venture into? Uh, if so, at what level? Different levels. So you be praying about that. It's a big vision. Big commitment. And we thank John being here to share his heart with us from J-Life and, and what they're doing. I love the model so much because it's a biblical model. It's a biblical vision. Rather than running out and trying to come up with some vision that just sounds good or looks good on paper, it's, it's the model that Jesus himself used with his disciples in the Gospels. Can't improve upon that. Amen? So you be in prayer about that. I want to ask you to stand in just a moment for our time of invitation. I know the time is running out quickly on us. Hours getting late. But as you think of these chairs here, where are you this morning? Maybe God's been doing a work of conviction in your heart. and You've come into this church this morning um, hoping to find some answers. You're at that chair one place. Maybe you need to come forward in just a minute and say, Pastor, I'm open to the gospel. I'm here because I want to hear about Jesus. There's something missing in my life. I'm going to ask you on the first stanza of the invitation to come forward. Maybe you're at that second chair. Um, Pastor, I've made that decision to follow Christ, to repent of my sins, place my faith in Christ. And you need to come forward and make that decision public. Everybody Jesus called, he called publicly. Perhaps you've been at that place for years and years and years. And over here, growing. And then to the point of being a leader, a disciple maker. And you want to say, God, here I am. Where can you use me in that process? We'd like to pray with you about that as well. If you're looking for a church body to be a part of where you can grow with other believers, you come forward. We would like to pray with you and see where you can be acclimated into this, this family of faith.